I would be surprised if you've never experienced this scenario. You're in a restaurant and you were you were tucking into your saucy burger and while your while your while your mouth is in the middle of that saucy burger you realize you got some gravy or some barbecue sauce dribbling down your chin and maybe some moutarde or some jus de la champignon as well and it's heading south down your chin and you know that you need to catch it before the person opposite you realizes that you have this big glob of nasty stuff on your chin. And right at that moment, as you're sat there with this mess on your face and you're wondering how to deal with it in the least gross way you can, just when you've reached down to grab that napkin off your lap and to, uh, to grab hold of that runaway sauce, just at that moment you hear a very cheery sounding how is everything? And you turn with your cheeks full of hamburger and sauces now dripping off your chin into your lap and you look into the eager eyes of the person who's serving your table. And I bet at that moment in your life you're not thinking, you know what, you're so considerate. Thank you. I'm so pleased that you care enough about how I'm doing that you ask me that right now. Instead, what you're probably thinking is something along the lines of, are you kidding me? You could just see I took a bite of that burger. You could see I'm trying to impress the person opposite. You can see I'm trying to wipe that barbecue sauce off my chin. And you ask me this question now. So that's what's going on in your head. And your internal temperature is rising and rising. Because now you suspect a conspiracy that every server around the world, waits around the corner for their person to stuff their face before magically appearing. That's what's going on in your head. But what you actually say is, Mmm, mmm, it's great, thank you. And so because this has happened to me personally so many times, I now expect the server to appear at the worst possible time and inquire after my general health and after the state of the meal. And so, so prior to taking a, a bite of that succulent um, meal, I take a glance around, I check the coast is clear, and then I go for it. I've, I've stayed in many hotel rooms, and one of the options when you're staying in a hotel room is you have a sign on the back of the door. What does it say? Do not disturb. And I think, I think those are great ideas, because what they mean is, I know that you have a job to do, and I, appreciate, and, and I appreciate it, but what I appreciate even more is if you went and cleaned someone else's room, because I'd really love not to be walked in on right now. That's what that sign means. And I think that we should introduce similar do not disturb signs in restaurants, signs that you can whip out at a moment's notice. You can leave them there on the table, thereby communicating to the server, I know that you have a job to do. And I know it's important, and I know that you want to ask me how is everything because you want me to feel cared for, because when I feel cared for, I give you a larger tip. But right now, the way that you can communicate care for me is if you leave me alone to eat my burger, let's say you give me maybe two minutes, and then I'll be done ramming cow down my face. Then when I've wet napped all of the bovine off my face, and you've seen me swallow, you have to see me swallow, then you can ask me how is everything. That's what that sign, do not disturb, would mean in a restaurant context. And so even though I know that it's super inconvenient sometimes for the server to turn up, it's never a surprise. 
And why isn't it a surprise? Because that's what the server is paid to do. That's their job. Okay, but I want you to imagine something else. I want to I want you to imagine that you're serving tables in a restaurant. You are that individual. And it's been a crazy day, you've been rushed off your feet, you're exhausted and you're in a bad mood and the tips have been rubbish. And if you have to paste that cheery grin on your face one more time, then you think you're going to say or do something that might actually end up in you being fired. And then the door opens and in walks an obvious high roller. You look at the Rolex on his wrist and the crisp shirt which is obviously tailor-made and the classily understated glasses that he's wearing, and the briefcase handcuffed to his wrist, and you wait for his retinue to walk in the door, his entourage after him, but he's, he's alone, there's no one else. And then you realize that there could be a big tip in this, and so you, you, you say to your smile muscles one more time, you want, you can do it, and then you walk up to him, and you say, is it a table for one? And he looks at you and you smell this, this complex but understated aftershave that he's wearing. And he asks you this. He says, what's the best seat in the house? And so you take him over to the window seat with the perfect view of the sunset. And you're about to ask him, can I start you off with a drink? When he says to you, have a seat. And it's been such a long day, and it's such an unexpected request, and you're so tired that you find yourself obeying. You sit down right opposite him, and without, without, without one moment's pause, he stands up and says, I'll be back in a minute. A while passes, and your confusion starts to talk, turn into concern. What if he's a weirdo? What if he's up to n no good? Maybe I should get back to work. But just before you can get back up on your feet, he returns, only this time he's not wearing his classy threads. This time he's wearing a work apron and he's rolled up his sleeves up to his elbows and he has a notepad and a paper in his hand. What'll it be, hun? He asks. What do you mean? I mean, what would you like to eat? Anything. It doesn't have to be on the menu. It could be anything in the entire world. Maybe, maybe caviar, maybe lobster, you know, the best steak that you've ever had, done just how you like it, maybe a glass of wine, any vintage, whatever you want. And so you manage to stammer out your reply, and then the stranger whisks away to get your order done. The rest of the evening is perfect. It's the best evening you've ever had. The music is perfect. He brings out your favorite book on a silver platter, and you've eaten some of the best food that you've ever eaten, six courses of glory. And you can still taste the melange of flavors chasing around in your memory. Now, you're now suffering what's known as a, a, a food coma, and you start to slump down in your seat. The stars are out and the moon is shining. Soft saxophone music is playing in the background. But you realize that you haven't seen your, your mysterious server for quite a while. But your long-term um, long fellow worker, Heather, is over the other side of the restaurant. And so you call her over and you say, hey, what happened? Where's that man that was serving me? And she says, yeah, he was out back washing up your stuff, but now he's left. He said he had a meeting, I think, but hold on. You don't know who that is? 
And she tells you who that mysterious server was. And the name that comes out of Heather's mouth literally makes your heart skip a beat. You are sat there with your mouth open. Slack. You've just heard that this guy that spent three hours serving you was none other than the multi-millionaire founder of the restaurant chain itself. And so you start to hyperventilate. And then Heather brings out an envelope and says, right before he left, he asked me to hand you this. And so you look inside the envelope and inside is a check. And when you see the unbelievably massive amount on the check and the famous signature of the founder of the company that you're working for, you cannot help but let out a little scream. This is the first message in our series called The Servant King. It's all about Mark's account of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the book of Mark was almost certainly written by, by, by John Mark, who was the companion of Paul, but the words are most likely not his. The words are most likely Simon Peter's. You see, in the years after Jesus' death, Mark would have rubbed shoulders with Simon Peter many, many times. This, this fisherman turned into church leader. And so, so in my mind's eye, I can, See Mark and Simon Peter sat at the table. Mark's pen is a flurry of action and he's capturing all that Peter is saying. And so Peter, who's never lost any of his enthusiasm at all, has a sparkle in his eye as he's sharing with Mark the memories that he has of his friend, his rabbi and his Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. And what Mark wrote down in those meetings and whatever context it was, what Mark wrote down is what we have now as the Gospel of Mark. And so Peter shares about the miracles, about the healings, about those, those time-stopping moments when it feels like heaven actually touched earth, snapshot after, after snapshot. And, and what you'll find out about Mark is that it's not the best written of the Gospels. It's not the most seamless. It feels a bit haphazard. It feels like it's one thing and then another and then, you know, and then a picture and then a picture and then a picture. It just goes on like that. So it's not the words of a master wordsmith, but rather what it is is the words of a salty language man who worked as a fisherman who became a fisher of men. So really, in a very real way, Mark's gospel is actually Simon Peter's gospel. Now if you turn to, well, you don't have to turn, but you can make a note of this. In 1 Peter 3.15, Peter actually refers to Mark as his son. And what this probably means is that there was some kind of a mentoring relationship going there. And it's also worth noticing that Mark was the earliest written of the gospel accounts. And that Matthew and Luke would have actually probably used it as source material for their gospels. And using external evidence, we can actually date... Mark's Gospel to about 65 AD, just over 30 years after Jesus ascended, which means there's not a lot of time for falsehoods to have crept in. And if there were lies, then there would have been people around who could have said, no, that's not what happened. It was, it was written only 30 years after Jesus ascended. Now, the purpose of Mark was to, was to provide real-time hope for the lives of the Christians who were living in Rome, who were 
who were living under the reign of Nero. And if you know anything about Nero, he was a horrific man. And uh, he blamed yeah, the Christians for the burning of, of, of Rome. It was, uh, it was a horrible, horrible time. So that's when Mark was, was written. It was written for the Christians in Rome. Now this morning, what I want to do is to lay the groundwork for us as we look into the book of Mark. And so to lay the groundwork, what we'll actually do is look at the key verse of Mark. And we find this verse by jumping straight into the middle of a conflict, of a fight. Now I don't know if you realize this, but but God's best lessons for us aren't found or learnt when we're hidden away in a holy huddle, singing worship songs and thinking holy thoughts. No, it's more likely that God waits until we're totally embarrassing ourselves or until we feel absolutely overwhelmed or we feel stressed beyond anything that he brings us some sort of a teachable moment. And it's at that moment when we just feel so overwhelmed that he says, hey, wonder if I could show you something right now. And I think that he does this because he knows us. And he knows us when we're ready for a teachable moment. And so that's where the disciples find themselves in Mark chapter 10, verse 41. Mark chapter 10, verse 41. Let's maybe turn there, if you can find it. Mark 10, 41. Now, what's, what's happened up until this point of Mark 10, 41, is that John and James have sneakily sidled up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Which really reminds me of my girls who maybe come to me and say, If I ask you something, do you promise to say yes? And what that makes me realize is that authority figures and parents have been dealing with this kind of manipulative nonsense ever since the time of Christ. And I know that I did exactly the same when I, you know, when I was a kid. And so Jesus, being the wise and anti-manipulation ninja that he is, responded by saying this, what is it that you want me to do? So you have to tell me before I say yes. And their response is, is this, when you come into your glory, into your... In, into your victory, whatever that looks like, let us be your right-hand man and your left-hand man. We want this place of honor and respect. And so what Jesus does is he ultimately sends up this, this request up the chain of command. And he says in verse 40, actually, that, that, that is really beyond my pay grade. I have to take it up to my manager, which is God the Father, and I think he's already earmarked those seats for someone else. Then what happens is that the rest of the yeah, the rest of the disciples, the ten, hear about this. So James and John are outnumbered five to one, and it's not looking good. Things are about to get super heated, and that's where Mark ten forty one comes in, which says this When the ten heard about this, the, they became they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, that their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So what we've just heard then, Mark chapter 10, verse 45, is the key verse of, of Mark. This is the verse that really um, shows us what, what the rest of the book is about. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. Now I've called this, ser- this series the, the Servant King, because that's what we face over and over again in Mark's account, is this glorious king who came to serve. And this, and this verse brings in these two crazy extremes, this, this wonderful king of glory who laid aside his royal crown and, and, and showed us, showed himself us as a servant. And so we're a church, right? And we worship Christ. And because Christ served, we also here at Cornerstone serve. Our goal as a church is that the apple would not far fall far from the tree. Our goal is that we would be a chip off the old block. And if I'm honest, as I look at you, I'm encouraged by what I see. It was one year ago, on the 4th of June, 2017, my first Sunday as a pastor here, just one year ago, that I preached on Galatians 4.19, which is this, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. That was my verse. And one year later, with all of the transition and the change and the joy and the loss, with all of that that we've experienced, this is still my my, my, my hope for you and my prayer for you is that Christ would be formed in you, that Christ would be formed in us. And as I look at you and as I look at us, I am seeing signs that Christ is being formed in us. And this starts to get my heart racing. But how do we know if Christ is being formed in us? By measuring the size of our heart for service. By seeing how ready are we to actually get our hands dirty in service. And here are some ways that, that I see members of this church, people of this church, fellow cornerstoners, wearing their boots and their coveralls, ready to serve. I see our grow group serving, whether it's through making meals for the big gift or, or doing amazing community events like ties and, and tiaras. What I've realized is that we're not just a Sunday church, we're an everyday church, and I love that fact. And it's amazing, you know, seeing how our grow groups are really bonding together, growing deeper in their faith and their understanding of scripture. And if you've not experienced the joy of a grow group yet, then my encouragement to you is to join one in the fall and to find out what the big deal is. You know what I also see? I see our staff are focused on services. Uh, service also we regularly pray for you each and every week and uh, and we also have an administrative assistant Stacy whose whose habit is to stop whatever she's doing to spend time with you or with someone in need um, even so far as stopping what she's doing and driving all the way down to Smith Falls to drop off essential supplies at someone's house. This is service. This is who we are. And our board knows what service is. The, the, the many hours which they've worked on looking at how do we structure our governance in the church. It's not very exciting. It's not very sexy, but it's extremely necessary. And so we've been researching things over this past year and we've revamped our 
um, our, our structure here in this church so that less time is spent on red tape and more time is able to be spent on service. So we've removed levels of red tape, levels of bureaucracy. And what I think now is that we're moving into a place where we're leaner and more nimble, ready to respond uh, as needs arise. Uh, so what's happened, okay, um, is that the legal trustee function has been absorbed up into the board, and then we've made a whole other team, uh, which, which, which really brings together all of the practical oversight of the people that used to be the trustees, and with the maintenance team. So it's a brand new team. And so we're postured, ready for service. But it's also worth, worth noticing that our maintenance team and our, and our trustees have been legends over this past few months, working hour after hour after hour on making sure that some vital projects are ready. And the showroom is all about service. You know what, up until this year, it had been maybe 24 years since our last ministry-related physical change here at the church. And in the fall of 2017, you voted yes, 72.5%, which we can round up to 73%, to say yes to the re remodeling and the re and the repurposing of the lobby. Why did we do that? So that we would be ready to serve our community. So for under seven thousand dollars we have transformed our outdated underused lobby into the showroom, one of our most used and most useful meeting places throughout our whole church. And so now what we see there weekly and and monthly is is that we have the Mummy and Me Tuesdays meeting there. We, 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 we had the work, worship simulcast in, um, there. We, we, yeah, we also had a showing of the Grey Cup there. We had membership classes there. We've had, we've used it as an emergency food center and we've used it as our morning fellowship location. So this showroom transformation is just one of the, of a set of strategic changes that has left very few parts of our facility unchanged. And these changes include our revamped sanctuary platform area, our unused organ is now, which now has a new lease of life in a, in a Korean church over in Toronto. The hardly used upstairs library has, has now been, has now morphed into a much loved momentum youth room. The former seniors pastor's office is now the lounge, which is another meeting area. The old nursery has received a new lease of life as an open concept coat room and the fellowship Hall is right in the midst of an essential overhaul now. We also have the hub, which is a center of resources and information, which is located just off the showroom. And the list of changes that have happened over this past year, with service in mind, just goes on and on and on. Also, we are getting our house in order, financially speaking, so that we are ready to serve like we've never served before. You know, what is a church which is trusted in God's faithfulness? Over this past year, we've moved from a place of financial lack to a place of financial health, which is amazing. We've been regularly meeting our requirements and even exceeding them over this past year. Halfway through this, this time last year, halfway through the, through the financial year, the fiscal year, we had paid out just 1% of of what we said we would pay towards missions and to ministries outside of our walls. That's what we had done this time last year. However, at this point, this year, this, this fiscal year, we've paid out over half 
of our financial commitments, which means we're ahead of the game. And also, you gave over $2,000 to raise the roof campaign for Riverside, and you raised $6,000 for the showroom phase one, and we also have money in the kitty for phase two of the showroom, which is tremendously exciting for me as a pastor, and I hope it's exciting for you. We've also served by working alongside friends for dinner and, and sharing our homes with, with international students so that they can experience a good meal and hear about the love of, of Christ. And Cornerstone has joined 130 other Canadian churches in being one of the big gift partners now for two years running. And yesterday was amazing and you've already heard all about it there's nothing that shows the servant heart more clearly than handing away tons of awesome stuff for absolutely free and so i'd like to show you a short video that takes about a minute which is from our community outreach team Hi everyone, I'm Terry Black and I'm the coordinator for the community outreach team and I just wanted to give a report on the um, the big give today. It was just an awesome day, weather cooperated and God made everything just uh, the weather beautiful and all the volunteers coming to help. Um, people were coming from the city, I talked to somebody from Merrickville, from Ottawa and uh, just all around the community. So it's really awesome to have everybody coming out. Um, I just wanted to share a story. So, uh, sorry, a story. <laughs> and um, there was a, fam uh, a community of uh, people from Haiti that were here and uh, they were um, gathering uh, furniture and clothing and all kinds of different things. And um, um, our, our uh, volunteers helped them deliver it to Ottawa and I went and asked them how um, they heard about our church way out here in North Gore and they were told that uh, they were they were told uh, about North Gore about Cornerstone Wesleyan Church um, from another church in Ottawa and they were blown away by how everyone was working together how um, you know, everyone was willing to help them bring the stuff to their community in uh, in Ottawa, and it was just an amazing story. So God knows those who are, are in need, and He knows how to meet those needs. So it's just an awesome praise God story, and uh, just praise God for this beautiful day and the opportunity to reach out to our community. Thanks. All right, exciting stuff. And let's also remember that we sent our very own missionary, Sarah Davis, over to Copenhagen to serve, uh, uh, to serve in a beachhead ministry context there at the university, which is amazing. You know what? I think that we as a church, the Cornerstone is known as a church that, that serves by not ignoring real needs. We, we get involved. We, we, we offer help. We, uh, we, we, we showed uh, our hearts and our networking skills through the 2017 flooding, um, and, then with, and then we made meals during the power outage of 2018, through our girls club, through, through the boys Lego club, and the Christmas tree lighting, and the Let's Outreach group, Church in the Park, through saying to AA that they can meet here regularly on a weekly basis, and through many other ways, we as a church are showing a watching world that we want to serve in a practical and in a tangible way. I've had numerous people from our from our community, not from our church, but from our community, say to me that that these things that we've done have not gone without notice. They have seen it. This world is watching, and when we, as Jesus Christ representatives, serve, they see it. 
Uh, during 2017, 2018, we've seen a good number of new folks join our church as well. And if this is you, then I want to tell you that it's been a, a huge source of encouragement for me to see you get stuck into what we we are doing as a church. And I'm really grateful for all of the volunteers and the leaders uh, who have who've been working so hard over this past year. I'm proud of you all. So I'd like to say that I love my Cornerstone family. I'm thrilled that I get to serve you as your pastor, and I'm really filled with joy at the signs of growth, these healthy changes that have swept our church. There are people joining grow groups. There are people who are getting baptized. There are people who are becoming members, that folks are getting involved here at the church. And I love hearing stories of you sharing Christ with your neighbors and your coworkers. These are all signs of growth. We are a faith-filled church, and we've shown that change is worth embracing when it's for kingdom purposes. Now, at the start of this service, I started off with a story of a multi-millionaire restaurateur who served a slap-up meal to a tired, exhausted server. And it's this story that gives us an insight into what Mark chapter 10, verse 45 means. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. Now in, in, in verse 42, we read this. Those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And there's no surprises there. But then what Jesus does is he throws them a bit of a knuckleball and he says to them, but not so with you. Instead, in verse 43, Jesus says this. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants, wants to be first must be slave of all. And then he wraps up in verse 45 with, with our key verse. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Christ does at that moment in time is he takes our expectations of what authority looks like and he flips it over. 180 degrees. He's knocking down our, our preconceptions of what leadership looks and what, what he is, who he is, with punch after punch after punch. He says this, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Now, if, if, if Jesus is God, we would expect him to tell us to serve him. You know, like that rich stranger who walks into a restaurant, you don't think that he will come and serve you. And if he asked us to serve him, and that was it, he would have every right to, because he's king, and king of kings and lord of lords. But know that this verse tells us that Jesus came to serve. That was the entire reason that Jesus came here to earth and so we say, okay, that's great. So Jesus is our example. He's a server. That's fair enough. But surely Jesus must expect something in return, some sort of a payback, some return on his investment. But no, Jesus did not come to serve in order to get some sort of a pat on the back. He came to give his life, as verse 45 tells us. He, he came to pay this huge price. And so we say, okay, so he came to die, but surely it was for those who deserve it, those who've earned it, those who've earned his attention and his love, those who've worked hard enough and have proved their worth, those who are religious enough or good enough or holy enough or sincere enough. But what this verse tells us is no, Jesus came to serve and to give his life as what? As a ransom. 
And what this means, what ransom means, is that Jesus came to pay for those who could not pay for themselves. He came to those who, who had no merit, who had no worth in and of themselves. He came to free those who were in chains, who had never known freedom, and who, who could never know freedom. He didn't come for those who were doing maybe community service. He, he came for those who were in maximum security prison. He didn't come for those who had to pay a minor fee for a minor in, infraction. He, he came to burst the shackles and the chains of those who were stuck in the deepest, darkest cell, who had never known sunlight, whose muscles had wasted away through lack of use. He didn't come to take your slap on the wrist. He came to take your place. Yes, on death row, he came as a ransom. And so fine, he came as a ransom, that's quite amazing, but surely there are some of us who find ourselves outside of his grace, who overstep the lines, whose sins are so gross and foul that even Jesus can't heal them. Or maybe those who keep screwing up, who sinned over and over and over again. Surely there are some who, through the nature of their sin, or because they've sinned so many times that they find themselves outside of Jesus' ability to save. But no, it says that he came so that he could give us life as a ransom, not just for a few, or for some, or for half, or for 65%, but for many. There, and, and, and what this means for us is that there is no one who finds themselves outside of his reach who are unsavable. You see, if, if you're driving over a bridge, you don't have to ask each time you drive over, is this bridge going to support the weight of my vehicle plus all of the people inside? All that you have to do is to look at the sign where it says, what is the heaviest truck that this bridge can hold? Then you know that you're okay. And the same is with being saved. You don't have to wonder if Jesus Christ can save you. You just have to look at the toughest case and see if Jesus can save them. And then if Jesus can save them, then he can save you as well. So what is the most hopeless sinner that Jesus can save? And we find that just a few verses earlier where it shows us what the hardest case, what the most extreme example that Jesus can even save them. If there's anyone who, who cannot be saved, then surely it is this individual. And who is this person? Verse 25 tells us it's the rich person. It's the wealthy person. It says, in, it says that it's incredibly hard for the wealthy to really be saved. And the reason is, I think, because the wealthy person is so, they think that they have everything which they need, why would they need a saviour? And so the good news is that even with the hardest case, what does it say in verse 20, verse, verse 27? It says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. So for rich people to be saved, it is impossible according to man, but not with God. All things are possible with him. And so what this means is that even the self-sufficient rich are welcome. And so if the door to heaven is open to those who are trusting in their bank account to save them, then the door is open to anyone. All things are possible with God, which means that the door is open for you. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many for you. 
You know, Christ is the servant king. He's the son of man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We heard the uh, hypothetical case of the multimillionaire founder who served this tired servant, servant the best meal of their life. But Jesus is even better. Jesus isn't the waiter billionaire. Jesus is the servant king. He didn't just slap down a fat check. He allowed himself to be sacrificed, slain, laid down his, his, his own life. And this was what the first ever big give looked like. And so it's only as we grasp how insane and unprecedented and ludicrous and offensive and humiliating Jesus Christ's example is that it no longer becomes a problem for us to live a life of service for others. When this meeting is finished, when this service is done, we will be having our annual elections meeting. We will be meeting God to praise God for his faithfulness and to set our ministry direction for another year. We will be meeting to vote on those who are called to uh, roles of, of responsibility for 2018, 2019, some of them maybe for the first time. I really believe as a church that we are doing well. And I love who we are being transformed into, into servants of Christ. And my prayer is that with him as our example, with him as our empowerer, that we will keep on going for another year.